You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. We are currently going through the book of Luke. We started about two weeks ago. We looked at chapter uh, 1 the week before our Christmas service. We looked at chapter 2 last week, and today we're going to look at the entirety of chapter 3. And this entire chapter gives us a glimpse into the preparation for Jesus' earthly ministry. We're not given many details uh, about the early years of Jesus' life. We probably would like to have some, uh, but we're not given them. Uh, We left him in chapter 2 warning, or actually amazing, the religious leaders with his wisdom and his knowledge. And, And now he's sort of thrust on the scene at the age of 30. And we're not given the details really in those 18 intervening years. Uh, But we do uh, know this, that much preparation took place leading up to this point in Jesus' life. That much preparation took place in his life as he humbly learned his foster dad's trade, which would have been typical of any Jewish male, to learn their father's trade. And, And for years, Jesus humbly swung a hammer and was a carpenter in Galilee, waiting for his father to say, the time has come, your time has come to do what I've called you to do. And in this chapter, we will see some of the people that God used to prepare the way for Jesus. That is the people that God used to fulfill his plan. And you guys, I want you to know something, that God uses ordinary people, ordinary circumstances, ordinary places to fulfill his sovereign plan. And that's what we see in this chapter, that God uses ordinary people and ordinary events to prepare the way for what he wants to do. And we're going to see this preparation brought about in a couple ways in our text this morning. First, through John the Baptist, and then secondly, through the line, the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus, all the people that God used to bring uh, Jesus into this world. And so we'll see John the Baptist in verses 1 through 22, and then Jesus' genealogy in verses 23 to 38. It says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Icheria, and the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, we read all of these historical details, we read all of these people's names, and we think, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Luke was a historian, and Luke is wanting to formulate a backdrop for us to understand the timing of these events. And rather than saying the exact date, he gives a bunch of historical figures so that you could have an idea of when this took place. It would be much like me saying, Ryan Couch planted Calvary Chapel of Crook County when George W. Bush was president of the United States, when Ron Wyden and Gordon Smith were senators of Oregon, when John Kitzhaber was the governor and Steve Uffelman was the, was the mayor of Prineville. And, and people would have an idea of the timing that that took place. 
And we don't know the exact timing, but it's probably around 27 AD that John is now thrust onto the scene to prepare the way for Jesus. And it's interesting that Luke is writing to Theophilus, who was probably a Roman official, a Gentile, probably involved in the Roman government. And he gives, Luke does, all of these Roman government officials and their titles and who they are. And, and, he, and he's wanting to, to show Theophilus exactly when this took place. He's also formulating a backdrop for the depravity of the time. Because each one of these men were crooked. They were men who were greedy and, and hardened in their heart toward the things of God. Even Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, Annas being a high priest previous to this, and Caiaphas being the high priest currently, even this office was filled with all kinds of illegal and sinful behavior. The nepotism that went through the the priests and the high priest's office at that time was was astounding. Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law, and between them were several high priests who were the sons of Annas. And so there was just all kinds of backwards nepotism and crookedness going on, even in the temple, even in the priesthood. And so Luke is wanting us to understand that Jesus came on the scene at a time when there was much moral depravity, darkness across the land. And often we hear people today say, well, God can't really do anything because our society, our culture is so deprived and, and this world is just going to hell in a handbasket and, and it's, it's over with and it's hopeless, it's helpless. And yet here, in a, in a time where there were 400 years where God hadn't spoken at all through a prophet, a prophet is thrust onto the scene at a time they wouldn't have expected it. In a time of darkness and depravity and crookedness, Jesus, the Messiah, comes to the earth. And Luke is wanting us to understand that. And he begins to tell us a little bit about John's mission in verses 3 to 6. And then in verses 7 to 22, we see John's message. His mission. It says, He went into all the region around the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, the the region surrounding that area, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Notice a couple things. First of all, that John was preaching. He he wasn't sharing. He he wasn't going around uh, helping people to get in touch with themselves. He, he wasn't going around hoping that people, uh, through his gentleness and soft-spoken demeanor, would uh, turn their lives over and, and do something good. He was preaching. And in our culture today, this postmodern culture in which we live, where people glean more from experience than they do from facts and from data that is available, people learn more and connect more with experience. And that has now translated into the church where preaching is becoming something that pastors are, are kind of told not to do. You, you should just share. Just, 
just talk to people. You don't need to preach. And, and some of it is, is semantics because what is really the difference between preaching and teaching? Or it, Preaching is declaring the gospel. But the fact is, is that preaching is as relevant today as it was when John was going about in the area of the Jordan. Proclaiming the gospel. Preaching. A baptism of repentance. Notice something else that he was speaking of repentance. A word that you don't hear often in the church today. A word that, again, is taboo. We, we don't want to tell people to repent. We just want to tell people to connect with God or, or to find their higher power, some sort of soft mumbo-jumbo. But John preaches repentance. Repentance is simply turning from the direction that you're going, which is away from God, toward God. A 180 degree change of direction. For the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And so he spoke about sin. He spoke about the fact that we have offended God. That our lives have fallen short of God's standard. And we need to know that. People need to know that today. That they are sinners. And without that understanding... The message of the gospel is meaningless. You have to know that you have a need and that you're a sinner. And John made that clear. And it was prophesied in the book of Isaiah the prophet about John, saying that he would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so Isaiah, 700 years previous, had prophesied about John, that he would prepare the way for Jesus. And really it was God who was preparing the way by making the way of salvation available to all men, removing every obstacle. And if you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you do not have a relationship with God, it's not because it's not available to you. It's not because there's some obstacle in your way. God has removed every obstacle. He's prepared the way. The path is straight. The valleys have been filled so that you can easily cross over to God. There was a, a chasm between you and God that was created by your sin and my sin. You were separated from God. You were an enemy of God, the Bible says. But that valley has been filled. There was a mountain between you and God, a mountain of your own sin, a mountain of your rebellion, a mountain of your stubbornness and of your self-righteousness and of your dependence upon yourself and your pride. And those mountains have been leveled. The obstacles have been removed so that you can go directly into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And John was preparing the way for that. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough ways smooth, so that all flesh can see the salvation of God. This would have been mind-boggling to the Jew who believed that they were the chosen ones of God and that everyone else was simply fire to fuel the flames of hell. Every person has an opportunity to come to God. And if you have not given your life to Him, it's because of your own hardness of heart. It's simply because of your own pride and your refusal to admit 
your need for him. And so John's mission was very simple to prepare the way for Jesus, to point others to Jesus. And in chapter 1, we saw this clearly through the prophecy of Zacharias, his father, that Jesus would be the precursor to the Messiah, to point others to Jesus. And you guys, it's not just John the Baptist's job to point others to Jesus. It's not just John the Baptist's job to be a vessel through which Jesus can flow to touch other people's lives. That's every one of our calling, to point others to Jesus. That was John's mission and purpose in life. And, and you might be a person who's very goal-oriented, who, who thinks a lot about what you want to do with your life, who thinks a lot about the future and what you're going to do. And please know this, that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that if you don't have as part of your goal, as part of your purpose, as part of your plan to point others to Jesus, that you are missing out on the most important element of your life. Certainly, you have priorities in your family and in your career and things that you want to accomplish, and those are good things, but they have to include pointing other people to Jesus Christ through whatever you're doing, whatever career you're involved with, whatever goals that you have, whatever hopes that you have for your kids. Number one ought to be that you point them to Jesus. And parents, if, if you're getting all wrapped up in, in how your kids are doing in school or in athletics, and, and you're missing their relationship with Jesus, you are doing them a disservice. You are paving the way to hell for your children. And, and if your goals are, are simply to, to make a lot of money, to, to advance in your chosen field of profession, if, if, if that's all that you want to do, is be known for your money or, or for what you've accomplished in this life, and it doesn't include Jesus and pointing others to Jesus, you have lived a wasted life. Look at John the Baptist. He was kind of eccentric, probably a, a guy that you would think, you know, he's phenomenally used by the Lord, but I don't know if I really want to hang out with the guy that much. He, you know, he just wasn't a super gregarious, outgoing, loving kind of guy. But John the Baptist, although not great in the eyes of men, Jesus would later say was the greatest of all men. Because he completely surrendered his life to be used by the Lord. He had one singular purpose for his life. You guys, I hope that you have that as well to be used by Jesus, to use your gifts, to point other people to him. And whatever else falls in line with that, whether you're a school teacher, a mechanic, a mill worker, whether you're throwing tires at Les Schwab or doing brain surgery, it doesn't matter. Whether you're making seven figures or, or barely making five, it doesn't matter. Because when you take your last breath here, and your first breath in heaven, the only thing that you will be judged by as a Christian is what you did with what Jesus gave you, with what you did with your purpose in this life. And to whom much is given, much will be required. And John the Baptist was given much. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. His life was spoken about hundreds of years before he was born. And with the much that he was given... He used it. 
to its full potential. Whatever you're given here, whatever you've been given, use it to point others to Jesus. That's the example of John the Baptist. Well, we've seen his mission. We're also going to see his message. Verses 7 through 22, it says, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him. And so multitudes, hundreds of thousands of people are coming out to be baptized by John. Now, this is a feat in and of itself. Because to be baptized as a Jewish person was to say that you needed something beyond your ethnicity. That you needed something beyond the fact that you were a son, a child of Abraham. They would have to be admitting that they were spiritually bankrupt. That they had something in their lives called sin that had to be removed. That had to be forgiven. That God had to propitiate. They, they, they recognized that. And they came out to him in the droves. And John says to them, Hey, welcome. Welcome to the first fellowship of John the Baptist. I mean, we're packed out. We're going to three services, folks. This is amazing. We're so glad you're here. Is that what he says? No, he says, brood of vipers. That's how he welcomes them. Again, if I'm on John's marketing team, I'm telling him you're going about it all wrong, my friend. This is not going to work. You can't offend these people like this. These are religious people. They've been raised in the church. They have a high view of their position with God. You've got to come at this a different way. But John, just straight to the heart, brood of vipers. What was he saying to them? He was calling them sons of the devil. A viper, a serpent, would have brought back images to their mind of Genesis chapter 3. And the devil presenting himself as a serpent. And he was saying to them, look, you think you're sons of Abraham. And you, you think you've got it all together. You, you think in your mind that God is pleased with you. But I want you to know that you are nothing but a snake. You're a son of the devil. And you need to repent. He says, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. It's almost as if John is surprised that they're there. Who, who told you of God's impending wrath? Another thing that John speaks about that we're told today not to speak about. The wrath of God. Hell. Judgment. And again, you guys, what good does it do to talk about Jesus without talking about what he saved you from? God's wrath is part of the message It's part of the good news. It's part of the gospel. It's good news to be woken up in the middle of the night to hear someone saying, your house is on fire, but there's still time to get out. Let's go. That's good news. So it's not good news to tell people that everything's okay and, and, you know, to just sort of give them this watered down postmodern version of the gospel. That's not okay. Because if I don't know what I'm being saved from, then I have no motivation to be saved at all. We have to give people the full message that they are a sinner, an enemy of God, who left to their own devices will face the judgment and wrath of God. But Jesus came. He took on human flesh. And he died in our place. And he took the judgment of God for us. That's what John wants them to know. You guys, that's what I want you to know. If you've come here this morning, maybe you were raised in the church. Maybe you've been very religious. Maybe you think you've got your life together, but it's been all about you and your own righteousness. 
And you've been approaching God on your own terms. God wants you to know today that you need to repent. That you need to repent of your self-righteousness. That you need to repent of your reliance upon your own goodness. Maybe you're here today and, and you've been raised in every place but the church. And, and you can relate to this brood of vipers condemnation. And, and you live under guilt and shame. And you don't feel righteous at all. And you don't feel like a person who has it all together. But you've just been carrying it around. Not really knowing what to do with it. Or being too stubborn or too filled with pride to do anything or to admit your need. And you just keep it within yourself. And you're depressed and you're discouraged. And you're isolating yourself. And you're living under constant shame and condemnation. Know this, that Jesus wants to free you from that. That he wants to take your guilt and your shame. And he wants to remove it, as the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. Never to be seen again. He can do that for you if you'll humble yourself. Maybe you're here this morning and and you just need to be reminded of what the gospel message truly is so that when you're sharing with people, you don't leave out key elements of the gospel, giving people a false sense of what the message is. Clearly, John, in his message, did not leave anything out. He was not trying to be politically correct. He tells them that they're sinners. He tells them of the wrath to come. He's told them to repent. Now he says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So he tells them, look, you need to repent and then there will be fruits that naturally come out of that. Just like dogs have puppies and cats have kittens and there's really not any supernatural occurrence just like an apple tree bears apples. It's just a natural byproduct of who they are. So too, those who truly repent and turn from the direction they were going, which was away from God, and turn toward God, there will be fruit Not fruit that you have to drum up and make happen, but fruit that will just naturally begin to blossom because now you are connected to Jesus. Now you've experienced Jesus. Now you're filled with the Holy Spirit and fruits of the Spirit begin to blossom in your life. So this is not legalism, you guys. This is not, look, leave here today and go out and try really hard to bear fruits worthy of repentance so that you can say, I'm a Christian, so that you can say, I'm going to heaven, look at my life, and and, and I'm doing these things. No, just repent. Get under the, the fountain of his blessings and of his grace and his love and allow him to work in your life and fruit will abound. I will never forget when I gave my life to Christ and I was so ignorant of the Bible. I was so ignorant of the things of God. And yet fruit began to blossom in my life. And I didn't really even understand what was going on. I couldn't explain it. I didn't do it. It just began to happen. All of a sudden, I I just love people. It wasn't because I wanted to. It just, God gave me a love for people. All of a sudden, my priorities changed. All of a sudden, things that I once said without giving it a second thought, I wasn't 
so willing to say, and if I did say it, I was convicted by it. All of a sudden, when I was given the wrong amount of change at the store, as I walked out thinking I scored, I had to turn around and give it back. And I was thinking, what is going on? This is amazing. And if you're here this morning, and you've been raised in the church, or maybe you gave your life to Christ at a youth camp a long time ago, whatever, and you've had a mental belief, but you've never bore fruits, can I tell you this morning that you have not repented, that you have not turned away from yourself and toward God? Because if you have, there will be fruits. And this word, bear fruits worthy of repentance, it isn't one little fruit. It isn't like a little apple at the top of the tree that tastes like garbage. This is an abundant amount of fruit that's brought about by the Holy Spirit in your life. It's brought about very naturally as you invite Jesus to do what he pleases with you. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. He says, don't begin to tell me about Abraham and that you're a child of Abraham. John's like, I don't want to hear it. God could soften rocks and make them followers of him if he wanted to. He doesn't need your pedigree. He doesn't need your ethnicity. And he would say the same thing to you today. Don't talk about Uncle Fred, who was a Baptist preacher. Don't talk about Cousin Joe, who used to be a youth pastor. Don't talk about Grandma Sarah, who read her Bible every day. Those, those things are great. But it doesn't mean anything in terms of your relationship with God. You approach God individually and personally. And John goes back to talking about the judgment of God. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so fruit is a litmus test for whether or not you know Jesus. And those people that have no fruit, they will be judged. Why? Because they didn't try hard enough? Because they didn't work themselves to the Lord efficiently enough? That their good works didn't outweigh their bad works? No, it has nothing to do with that. It's simply because they didn't truly repent and turn their life over to Jesus and allow him to work through them. That's the message, you guys. Please do not leave here today thinking that this is about you. What this is about is you humbling yourself and admitting that it's not about you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And it's the hardest thing for people to do, especially those of us who have been raised to look out for number one, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, especially in a culture like we live in here in, in Prineville and in Central Oregon where people are very independent, where many people have been raised, raising their own food and, and killing their own meat, splitting their own wood and making their own living. No handouts. And at 18, you were told to, to hit the road and get a job. None of this living at home till you're 45, you know. Not, not here. Get a job, work hard, be respectable. And that's a good thing. But it can get in the way of you coming to the Lord because you're so independent. Because you've always done it yourself. I don't need God. I can do this on my own. Well, okay, I need, I need a little bit of God, but the rest I can do myself. Lord, just give me a little kickstart and see God will have none of that. God says it's either all of me and none of you or it's all of you and none of me. That's your choice. 
And it takes humility. Are you willing to humble yourself so that you can bear fruits worthy of repentance? If you've been trying really hard and all you're getting is a nasty little apple, you need to turn your life over to the Lord. Let him do the work and watch fruit abound. You can't try hard enough. It's just simply surrendering your life to Jesus. So the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? Man, this stands in stark contrast to much of the emotional manipulation that takes place in the church today. And I'll say this, it's why that I don't do a lot of the, you know, close your eyes and bow your head, raise your hand if you want Jesus. I mean, there's a place for that and we do it sometimes. It's why we don't do a lot of the come forward. One of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, Jonathan Edwards, never gave an altar call, not one. He would preach messages that would absolutely blow your mind. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Then he would conclude, he would say, okay, what are you going to do with it? That's it. And if you want Jesus, I don't have to twist your arm. I don't have to get you all worked up emotionally so that you'll come forward sobbing, fill out a card, get a new believers pack, go on your way. Hey, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that in, in the sense that God has used it in many people's life. He used it in my life. What I'm saying is I would never want to give you a false sense of what it means to be a Christian. And raising your hand or coming forward does not mean anything. And when you look at the conversion experiences in the New Testament, here in the book of Acts chapter 2, after Peter preaches, 3,000 people get saved. Peter didn't give an altar call. They said, what must we do? Here, what shall we do then? What do we do with this message? Human responsibility. We've seen the divine, sovereign work of God, that he does it. But there is human responsibility as well to say, what do I do with this message? And maybe you're at that place where you're saying, what do I do with this? It's very simple. You admit your need for Jesus. You believe that he is the only way to salvation that apart from him, you are lost and headed for certain destruction and judgment, and you confess him as your Lord. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's simple. The people asked, what shall we do? And John answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Three different groups of people, the multitudes, the the general population, the tax collectors and soldiers came to John. Now, Certainly, there were many other professions and many other types of people, but Luke is giving us three basic groupings at that time of people that came to John and said, what shall I do? What kind of fruits do I need to bear? What would it look like? And each response to each group of people is very similar. Do you notice the common denominator that it has to do with money and possessions? very interesting. The gospel of Luke is filled with admonition toward how we handle our possessions and our money. And you guys, again, I don't want to be legalistic, but I will say 
that how we handle our money is probably the greatest evidence of where our heart is at with the Lord. In fact, later on in the Gospel of Luke, Luke will quote Jesus as saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure this morning? Well, I mean, you you certainly aren't talking to me, Ryan, because I don't have any money. Hey, you know this. I've said it a thousand times. You don't have to have money to be a lover of money. In fact, some of the greediest, most stingy, most absolute lovers of money are people that don't have any. And so you don't have to have a lot to have it absolutely consume your life, the pursuit of it, the quest of it. And John says to each one of these groups, you want to bear fruits? You want to know what it looks like? Then surrender your possessions to the Lord. To the general population, he says, look, I know you don't have a lot, but if you've got two tunics, which was basically like an undergarment, if you've got two, then give to somebody that doesn't have any. You guys, that can apply to every one of us here. You might think, I don't have a lot of money. If you know Jesus and if you've repented, one of the fruits that will come out of that is to simply give what you do have. And maybe you don't have a lot, but pray for God to give you creativity. Open your home. Use the resources that you do have. If you've got two tunics, give one away. Likewise, if you have food, give to people that don't have any. None of us here are, are missing any meals. I mean, I look at myself, I look around. I mean, hey, we're, we're doing all right in that category, right? We, we may not have a lot, but we can share with people that don't have anything at all. And that's why we have a soup kitchen where we can help the, the neediest among us. And some of you, maybe you don't have a lot of, t- uh, a lot of money, but you've got time. And you could serve down at the oasis with your time. You could serve others. Maybe you don't have a lot of money, but certainly instead of buying one bag of rice, you could probably buy two and give, give one to somebody that doesn't have any. We can all make sacrifices, you guys. And, and I don't want to give us this major trip because we all spend money that we shouldn't. We all spend money that we don't have. I mean, if you just look in my closet, I've got, you know, way more shirts and pants and shoes than I can wear. I, I just do. And so we all have ways that we can reach out with our possessions. He says to the tax collectors, collect no more than what is appointed for you. This was such a perverse and crooked system that they had where the Roman government basically said, look, this is how much we want to collect. And so as a tax collector, you just go collect whatever you can. This is what we want, though. So imagine if it was $100. That's what the Roman government wanted from every household. So as a tax collector, you would say, well, geez, if I can get 200 I get to keep 100 And so they would intimidate people. They would harass them and try to get whatever they could out of them. That's why later on in the book of Luke, we're going to run into a guy named Zacchaeus who is a tax collector. And when he encounters Jesus, he's absolutely convicted by the amount of people that he's ripped off. And he wants to do something about it. Maybe you've ripped people off. Maybe you've used your position or your business or your savvy skills to rip people off. And, and, and what the Lord would say to you today is, look, don't get out of the business that you're in unless it's some sinful thing. But that doesn't apply to any of us here. I don't think any of you are running like a porn shop or anything. But obviously, if that's the case, you know, get out of it. But 
He doesn't say, <laughs> he, he doesn't say get out of what you're doing. He just says, do it right. Don't rip people off. Collect no more than what's appointed for you. And the soldier said, look, what are we supposed to do? And he says, basically, don't shake people down for money. Because the soldiers would walk by people and, and they would use their power and their position to get money. Because they made a very, very basic wage, a low wage given by the Roman government that would just meet their needs. And then they were free to collect money however they wanted to. So if you were walking in front of one and they said, hey, give me a hundred bucks. And you'd be like, I don't have it. Well, then give me 10. Well, geez, I needed to feed my family. See this sword? I don't think it's going to feel good. Ram down your throat. Give it to me. Okay. And that's how it went. And so John is telling them, don't do that anymore. Don't get out of the military. He doesn't say to them, quit serving the evil Roman Empire. He just says, do it honestly. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Now, the New King James doesn't have good news in there, but it's better translated. He preached the gospel. He preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. And so John, as soon as he hears an inkling that the people think he's the Messiah, that they think he's the Christ, he points them to Jesus. He says, look, it's not about me. There's one coming who I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandal and wash his feet. It would basically be like saying today, I'm not worthy to take out his garbage. He, he wanted them to know that it was about Jesus. You guys, how, how do you present yourself to people? Are, are you really concerned that people think you're great, that people see you and your intelligence or your skills, or, or they know what you've accomplished? Or, or are you like John who says, don't look at me, look at Jesus. May, may he increase as I decrease. You guys, may Jesus increase in our life. May we point people to Jesus and not ourselves. It's such a tendency in our flesh to want to be recognized, to want people to think that we're great, to want people to think that we're smart, especially you young guys. We've got this, this need for people to think that we're smart. You know what? It doesn't matter. Point them to Jesus. Ladies, you, you have this need for, for people to think that you're pretty and that you're attractive. And you know what? Who cares? Point people to Jesus. Let them see the attractiveness and the beauty of Jesus through you. And this section ends with Jesus being baptized. But before that, we see John being shut up in prison because he preached against Herod, the king at that time. Herod, who was the son of Herod the Great, Herod the, the Tetrarch, he, he was given a portion of his father's kingdom because really all of Herod's sons were complete idiots and none of them deserved to be given anything, but they agreed to give him little 
portions. And Herod had a bunch of brothers. Two brothers by the name of Philip. One was actually a king. Another was just a regular citizen. Philip, the brother that was a regular citizen, was, was married to a woman by the name of Herodias who was not only his wife, but also his niece. And so they're married. Now Herod the Tetrarch and Philip are having a, a family get-together. And Herodias and Herod the Tetrarch are attracted to each other. They're also related. He's also her uncle. He's also her brother-in-law. They hook up. They leave their respective spouses and they're shacked up together. Sounds familiar. Today, it wouldn't be anything to make news about. But in that culture, in that society, it was a big deal. And John was preaching against them and their lifestyle. And Herod the Tetrarch actually liked John. And in Mark chapter 6, you can read about it on your own. You see that, that Herod didn't really want to do anything about it. But Herodias was, was very angry about his preaching and about what she felt was judgment against her in their lifestyle. And so she said, I want you to arrest him. Then she sent in her daughter and she danced seductively. And remember, they're all related. Plus, this is his stepdaughter and his second niece. He's, a, he, he's turned on by her, Mark chapter 6. And he says to her, you tell me anything you want, I'll give it to you. Well, her mom had already instructed her, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. So she goes back to her mom. She says, look, said, I'll give you whatever you want. That's what they did. Herod was pushed into a corner. He didn't want to do it. But he not only imprisoned John, but he killed John. And so that's some of the background. But I, I think the application for us is that John was willing to say hard things to people despite the consequences. He didn't worry about it. He didn't worry about what people would think, what they would say, or what would happen to him. And it cost him his life. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And so Jesus is being baptized by John. Jesus, who was perfect, without sin, came to John and humbled himself and identified with sinful humanity by being baptized and as he's praying, the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Jesus. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And so Jesus is being baptized, he's praying, the Spirit comes upon him like a dove. Why a dove? Why not a hawk or, or something cool, you know, like a falcon, an eagle? Why a dove? I mean, doves are, you know, that they're kind of gentle and they're nice and they're humble. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? it? The Spirit descended like a dove. The Spirit is not a dove, just like God the Father is not a chicken with wings. The, the Bible uses all kinds of metaphors to help us to understand what God is like, things that we can connect with in our mind. And, and here... The Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus to represent the kind of ministry that Jesus would have. Not a hawk-like ministry, but a dove-like ministry. And Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are, who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle 
and the lowly. He was meek. Jesus, it was said of him, would not put out a smoking flax. He, he would not break a, a wounded reed. He, would, he, he, he takes a life that is broken, that is about to go out, and he ignites the flame. He kindles it. He takes a life that is broken, that's, that's hung over like a reed, snapped by the wind, and he restores it and he repairs it with gentleness and with love and with kindness. And that's what he wants to do in your life. He's not a hawk who, as you see out here in, in the fields, out around Powell Butte or out in the desert, you see these hawks soaring around. What, what are they looking for? They're looking for a wounded rabbit. Or they're looking for a, an unsuspecting rodent so they can swoop down and take the opportunity. That's not Jesus. He's not looking to destroy and to kill. He's not looking to take somebody that's broken and discouraged and to push them over the edge. He's like a dove. He's gentle. He's merciful. He's kind. He's loving. And he says, come unto me, all of you who need rest, and I'll give it to you. And the Spirit descended upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. The Father is validating the ministry of Jesus. And you guys, we approach the Father through Jesus. He sees us through Jesus. We have been crucified with Christ. Our lives are no longer our own. We identify with Christ. He lives in us. And the same way that the Father said to Jesus, You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. The father says that to you today if you know Jesus. He's well pleased with you. He's not mad at you. He doesn't condemn you. He loves you. He's well pleased with you. He wants you to know that because of his son. If you've never given your life to Christ and you want that, you want to be well pleasing to the father, can I tell you today, you guys, you can't do it on your own. You can't bear these fruits worthy of repentance on your own. You'll fall miserably short. You have to come through Jesus. You have to identify with him. You have to experience him. And in the closing section, it says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. Now, this genealogy is absolutely in opposition to the genealogy in the book of Matthew. And commentators and scholars have written scores of books and volumes about how to reconcile and what's going on. And you know what? Most of us don't care. And here's the thing. This is a list of names, all of which were preparing the way for Jesus. Just like John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus. All of these people that are listed here are preparing the way of Jesus. Preparing you and me to have opportunity to have a relationship with God. And God used all of these ordinary people, all of these names, all the way down to verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why does Luke go all the way back to Adam, whereas Matthew only goes to Abraham? Because Matthew was writing to the Jew, and he wanted to show that Jesus was the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one that they had been waiting for. And it was all validated by the fact that he was the son of Abraham, that he came directly through that line and lineage. But Luke has a different purpose, and he wants Theophilus, and he wants the entire world to see that Jesus is a man, that he identifies with you and with me, that he's the son of Adam, the son of man. And the first Adam, as 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5 tell, tell us, The first Adam blew it. 
He blew it big time. He ate of the forbidden fruit. He chose to rebel against God. He turned his back on God. And he brought sin into the entire world. But the second Adam, Jesus, brings life. The first Adam brought death. He brought death to you. The moment you were conceived, you were brought into this world to die. You were given a sin nature through your parents, ultimately through Adam. But Jesus, the second Adam, broke that curse and he overcame death and he gives you the opportunity to have life. And if you want that today, man, we would love to pray with you. If you have noticed that that your life is not bearing fruits worthy of repentance, come forward. We want to pray with you. Turn your life over to Jesus. If anything today has brought you to a place where you just want to surrender your life to the Lord, you want to have us come alongside you to pray with you, we'd love to do that. We'll be available here afterward. You guys, I want to invite you to stand together. We're going to close by singing to the Lord. I just want you to commit these things to him. Whatever it is that God has spoken to you this morning, I want you to commit it to him. Don't leave here today without making these things real in your own life. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.